may not know, it's, it's our practice in general to teach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It doesn't mean we will never do a topical series. We do from time to time. But we typically teach through books. And one of the reasons we do that is that we as pastors don't get to pick and choose our favorite subjects. We have to teach all that is there. And there's a safeguard in that too. Uh, because again, even the hard texts we have to teach through. Um, I like to say that the Word of God is not only the right message, it's in the right proportion, designed by God. So we teach through it. Now, having said that, I'm sure you know the saying that if you want to avoid conflict at home, especially family gatherings, you should never talk about what? Religion and politics. Well, they're both in our text this morning. What could go wrong? <laughs> right? That's why I opened in prayer, because uh, we can't just skip over chapter 5. we got to dig into it. So this morning, the message title is Godly Governance. And John, if you could bring that up in the back for me. And it's going to be Nehemiah chapter 5. The outline has three simple parts to it. First, the iniquity, the inequity, excuse me, in verses 1 through 6. Then the iniquity in 7 through 13. And finally, the integrity in verses 14 through 19. So the inequity, the iniquity, and the integrity. And so we'll just read through the first section uh, because it is a longer text and then we'll, we'll dive into it. So beginning in verse 1 of Nehemiah 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against the Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others are saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others are saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Well, this is the word of God. And all scripture is God-breathed and suitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness so that we as believers might be built up. And so we're going to work through this, starting with the inequity. Um, in these first six verses. Now put yourself in Nehemiah's place for a moment. I'm sure he had his hands full with the management of this enormous construction project. There's thousands of people involved in it and he's coordinating all that. And then on top of that, the enemies surrounding them are threatening to attack them, the Sumerian army. And as if that wasn't enough, now he has people problems. I don't know about you, but I, that's one of the toughest ones, I think, are people problems. Back when I was an IT director, I had to deal with a lot of problems. But computer problems, I can handle those. Computers do what you tell them to do, good, bad, or indifferent. But people are probably the greater challenge, especially when people start using computers. <laughs> then it's really challenging. We kind of had code words that we would use. We'd say, well, the problem here is an ID10T. And they didn't necessarily know what that means. An ID10T, I'll, I'll give you a quick hint. You can sound it out. <laughs> 
I love those idiots, though. Most of them. <laughs> In our brokenness, we struggle, we fail, we make problems. Well, on top of everything else, Nehemiah was now having to deal with people problems. And if I were him, I might have begun to wonder, is the Lord really in this? Did he really call me to do this? Maybe he did, and now he's backed out. Maybe he's no longer wants this to be done. The Lord must be closing the door. Because every step I take, I'm faced with opposition. But as we said, when God is at work, expect opposition. Jesus had it. He told us you should expect it too. And so if we don't understand that and have that right perspective, then we're going to really misunderstand a lot of things that happen in our own lives and especially in our ministry. They were facing opposition because God was in it. And so what's going on in these first six verses? Well, they speak of four different groups of people, and we'll just break them down. Group number one, the people who didn't own land but needed food. Uh, verse two says, some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Now, normally, having a lot of sons and daughters meant you had the manpower to work the fields, and you would be prosperous. But these families didn't own any fields, yet they still needed to buy food. Group number two, the people who owned land but mortgaged it to buy food. Now, verse three says, others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. When I was a kid, all I knew about mortgaging was what I learned from playing Monopoly. Remember playing Monopoly? I haven't played it in a long time. I kind of want to break it out again. But you could own the choicest uh, property like Boardwalk. I always like getting a hold of that. But if you started running low on cash, you'd have to mortgage it. And then you'd have to sell off your, your buildings for half their value. And you'd have to sell the property itself half the value, you'd mortgage it, and you have to turn it upside down. And now when somebody came and landed on your place, you couldn't collect any rent. That was because it was mortgage. That was about all I knew about mortgage at the time. I've learned a lot more. But some of these Jews in Jerusalem were having to mortgage their fields and their vineyards and their homes just to have enough money to buy food. A mortgage means that they had to use the property to back the loan. And so if they couldn't pay the loan, they stood to lose the property itself. And that would put this group number two right back with group number one. People who were hungry and had no property or food. Then there's group number three. The people who complained that in order to pay taxes, they had to borrow money, sell their land, and enslave their children. It says, still others, in verse 4, were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Well, the people were already living in difficult, in difficult circumstances. They'd come back from captivity in Persia, Babylon. They came back into the land. Their houses were torn down. The walls of the city were broken down. The gates were burned. There were no defenses. 
Their fields hadn't been worked in years. And now on top of all that, they're having to rebuild the wall. They can't put the time into the fields that they need. So it just added to their impoverished state. So they were facing a new threat now. It wasn't the enemies surrounding them with their armies. It was an enemy within. It was actually their own countrymen who were this group number four. This one, we'll go back to verse one. This is the wealthy Jews and the public officials who were exploiting those who were poor. Notice what verse one says. The men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow brothers, against their Jewish brothers. So rather than helping their poor countrymen, they were taking advantage of them. They saw this as an opportunity to further their own situation. And so they were loaning them money, charging high interest, and taking their land and their children as collateral and even payment. So they were enriching themselves at the expense of their brothers and sisters. Now, when I was a kid playing Monopoly, when one of my brothers or sisters fell on hard times and they had to mortgage their property, I felt good. I started wringing my hands because all that stuff that they owned was about to be mine. And I love getting a big, tall stack of those gold $500 bills. You know that golden <laughs> color? Those are the best. And so it was cool. I liked it. But that's not God's will for us in real life. He doesn't want us to pray, P-R-E-Y, on our brothers and sisters when they're facing hardship. He wants us to pray, P-R-A-Y, for them. And to be generous toward them and help them get back on their feet again. So Nehemiah says in verse 6 then, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Now a question. Was Nehemiah's anger sinful? Was he right to get angry about this? As you consider it, consider this along with it. God got angry at the worship of idols. We saw that in the book of Ezra. He got angry at the mistreatment of aliens, orphans, and widows. Moses, it says, quote, became hot with anger when Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go. Hot with anger. Jesus displayed anger when the money changers were in the temple using it for business. And he drove them out with a whip and he turned over the tables. Jesus got angry. Did you know that the Bible actually commands you and me to be angry? It does. It's in Ephesians chapter 4. And it's verses 26 and 27. It says, be angry. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, this is referring to righteous anger. Be angry. Be righteously angry, but do not sin. Righteous anger is anger that is directed at sinful behavior. And, and it's a desire to see righteousness rather than sinfulness. But righteous anger also has to be handled the right way, not by being quick-tempered or out of control. 
There's a quote in this regard that I really like, and it's from a pastor and scholar. His name is Dr. David Siemens. He's no longer with us. But this is his quote. There it is. He said, anger is a divinely implanted emotion closely allied to our instinct for right. It is designed to be used for constructive spiritual purposes. The person who cannot feel anger at evil is a person who lacks enthusiasm for good. If you cannot hate wrong, it's very questionable whether you really love righteousness. Isn't that interesting? I think he's right on the money there. Consider Nehemiah. He cared so much for these Israelite brothers and sisters that when he heard their, the walls are still broken down and they were defenseless and in shame, he mourned and fasted for several days as he lifted up petitions to the Lord. He cared a lot. And now he sees these people tearing down each other. And his response is anger. But it's righteous anger. Righteous anger is not a sin. But having established that, I think we have to say that most of our anger is probably not righteous anger. James 1, 19 and 20 says, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Man's anger, in other words, the anger that so often characterizes us, is not righteous anger. It's not godly anger. It's sinful anger. So we have to consider our motives and also our actions when we think about anger. And here's a simple test of righteous anger. First of all, is our anger directed at sinful behavior? Is that the source of it? Is it sinful behavior? Secondly, is it based on a desire to see righteousness? And then thirdly, this is an important one, is it acted upon in a godly way? See, even when our anger begins as righteous anger, it can so easily turn sinful and ungodly. That's why the precaution, be angry and sin not. A person can be angry at the legality of abortion, at the taking of an unborn life. But if that person turns around and kills an abortion provider, his anger just became sinful. Now that's extreme, but think about it maybe on a more subtle level. A person can become angry when they see the actions of political leaders on the news. Do you feel that? You feel righteous anger? But if we turn around with that anger and we dishonor and disrespect them, it's just become sinful anger. We can feel angry when someone violates our right away and cuts us off in traffic. But if in response we give them a certain hand gesture or curse them under our breath, it just became sinful anger. So according to one poll, now 84% of people surveyed said Americans are angrier today than just one generation ago. And 71% reported getting angry when checking the news. Most of that probably turns into something unrighteous. 82% of drivers reported committing an act of road rage. 
82%. So in response to this, it's common for some people to kind of rationalize their anger. I can't help it. I'm wired that way. I'm Italian, you know, or, or I'm Irish or whatever. You know, I can't help it. I'm, I'm temperamental. We rationalize. You know the definition of temperamental? 90% temper, 10% mental, <laughs> you know? <laughs> temperamental. That's no excuse for sinful anger. Now, if you're struggling with anger, don't rationalize it. Let the Lord help you overcome sinful anger. And if you're interested, I have a worksheet that I'd be happy to share with you. It helps us understand righteous and unrighteous anger, and it helps us work through overcoming that. I'd be happy to share it with you. Just shoot me a text or, or see me after the service. So Nehemiah, he became righteously angry. Now let's see how he worked through that righteous anger. So he was angry at the inequity, and what I want to look at next is the iniquity in verses 9 through 13, 7 through 13. So he starts off, he says, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Well, now, notice, first of all, right away, Nehemiah doesn't react immediately or irrationally or sinfully to the anger that he felt. It says, I pondered them in my heart. Uh, the ESV says, I like this, I took counsel with myself. There's a great example in that for us. In other words, I got control of my feelings and my emotions first so that I didn't fly off with hot-tempered anger, and do something sinful. We need to take heed of that, because we can fly off the handle by letting our mouth and our emotions run out ahead of our, our mind. And so Nehemiah gets control of his thoughts and his feelings first, and then having done that, he says in verse 7, he accused the nobles and the officials. Now, the nobles, these would be the wealthy people, and the officials... Those would be the politicians, the public officials. He says, you're exacting usury from your own countrymen. Now, usury can mean just ordinary interest, but most often usury means excessive interest, unreasonably excessive interest. Historical documents show that in some ancient cultures, interest rates could be greater than 50%. Yeah, now that just becomes a form of confiscation. That's not compensation. That's confiscation. Because when they can't pay that, they take over the property. It's been mortgaged. So Nehemiah calls together a large meeting to deal with this. And in verse 8, he says, As far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your brothers, only for them to be sold back to us. And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. He's pointing out that the Jewish people had just been set free from bondage in Persia. God had set them free and brought them into this land. And now they're enslaving one another all over again. And so 
they were having to sell their land and even their family members in order to pay the usury, which was being imposed on them by their own brothers and sisters. So verse 9, he says, so I continued, what you are doing is not right. You should walk in a fear of, of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. So regardless of the interest rate, we don't know what interest they were charging, but regardless, what they were doing was wrong. It was wrong, and it was sinful. And he's calling this out. It wasn't right because in the Mosaic law, God forbid the Jews from charging interest to one another. They could charge interest to foreigners, but not to their fellow Israelites. So let me read you from Leviticus chapter 25. It says, if one of your countrymen becomes poor and has to mortgage his boardwalk. No, doesn't say that. If one of them becomes poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would an alien or a temporary resident so that he can continue to live among you. Do not take interest of any kind from him, but fear your God so that your countrymen may continue to live among you. You must not lend him money at interest or sell him food at a profit. Now, why would God do this? Well, the answer is in the very next verse in Leviticus 25, verse 38. I am the Lord your God who bought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. In other words, God set them free from bondage in Egypt and he freely gave them everything they have. How could they turn around now and start charging one another? God had other uh, laws, commands that were meant to minimize poverty within the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 15, it says, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel a loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your brother owes you. Every seven years, the books are wiped clean. And a little further down in uh, verses 12 and 13, if a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you and serves you for six years, in the seventh year, you must let him go free. And when you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you are slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. Again, God had set them free from slavery and they were re-enslaving one another. It's a little bit like the parable Jesus told of the unforgiving debtor. He forgave this enormous, unpayable debt. And the man leaves that place happy, goes out, finds a man who owns him, owes him just a little bit of money, grabs him by the collar and says, pay it. And when he couldn't, he threw him in prison. That's what God's saying here. I set you free. I gave you everything you have. And now you're going to turn around and charge each other for it. Well, Verse 10, I and my brothers and my men are also lending people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. So Nehemiah and some of his men are doing it the way God wanted 
They're helping them out. They're saying, here's some money. Here's some grain. I'm not selling it for profit. I'm not even charging you interest. I'm helping you. This was, this was God's plan for them. It was to help them get back to self-sufficiency. Now, I mentioned Monopoly. Imagine playing the game of Monopoly where it reinforces these principles. Maybe you could call it something like Godopoly. So, in my imaginary game of Godopoly, when someone has a, a misfortune and they're need of money, in need of money, rather than having to mortgage their property, those who have money freely give it to the person in proportion to what they have. They don't force him into bankruptcy. They help him get back on his feet again. Then, imagine in my little imaginary game, that when those generous people land on the community chest, they might draw a card that says this. God blesses in your favor. Collect $1,000. It comes back to them. Or maybe better yet, God blesses in your favor. Collect 10 times what you gave. You can't outgive God. He blesses us in return. That would be a very different feel, wouldn't it? You know, no longer would you be wringing your hands waiting to get a hold of their money. You'd be reaching out your hand and helping them. It'd be very different. It would reinforce a very different set of values. Now, Maybe just in my imaginary game, for those who weren't so generous or had no heart for God, the pagans, when they land on community chests, they might draw a card that says this. Go to hell. Go directly to hell. Do not pass God. Do not collect $200. <laughs> in my game, I got upily here. Well, again, it would reinforce a very different economy, wouldn't it, than what we learn in Monopoly. So, Paul, are you saying that capitalism is wrong here? That we can't charge interest? That we should forgive all loans? Not at all. Not at all. But this is where we need to talk a little bit about politics. Now, understand politics, it helps to understand the origin of the word. There's a thing called etymology. It's the study of the origin of words, not Entomology, that's a study of bugs, okay, but etymology. And so the word politics, poly comes from the Greek word many, and ticks are those little bloodsuckers. <laughs> so <laughs> politics, many little bloodsuckers, there you go. <laughs> Maybe it is entomology, little bugs, <laughs> and etymology rolled, rolled into one. But seriously, politics is the organized governance of society. And here's where it gets tricky. It involves the distribution of power and resources within a society. What could go wrong there? Well, when you combine that with our broken, fallen, sinful nature, with our greed, our covetousness, our selfishness, it's no wonder we have the challenges that we have today in society and in politics. You know the saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. Yeah. I heard about an older couple who had a son who still lived at home. And they were kind of concerned because he hadn't decided what he was going to do for a career. So they wrote out a little note and put it on the entryway table. 
And around it, they set a $10 bill, a Bible, and a bottle of whiskey. And then they hid in the closet because he was about to come home. And the man said to his wife, now, if our son picks up the $10 bill, he's going to become a businessman. If he takes with him the Bible, he's going to become a pastor. But if he takes with them the whiskey, well, then he's just going to become a no good drunkard. So they hid in the closet. They peer through the crack in the door. And here comes their son. He reads the note. And then he picks up the $10 bill. And he looks at it in the light. And he stuffs it in his billfold. And then he picks up the Bible. And he thumbs through it. And he puts it under his arm. And then he picks up the whiskey. And he sniffs it to verify the quality. And he heads off with all three of them. And the, and the father says, oh, my word. He goes, it's far worse than I imagined. And his wife said, what? What's the problem? He said, our son is going to become a politician. <laughs> well, I think politicians deserve, many of them, deserve the bad rap that they get. Amen? <laughs> many, not all. There's some good politicians, but many of them kind of deserve the bad rap. But... When God gave the Mosaic law to the nation of Israel, they didn't have politicians. Here's the thing. They had a different form of government, different than the nation of Persia, different than any nation on earth, different than the United States. They had what was called a theocracy. Now here we can do some real etymology. Theo means God, crassy means ruling, God ruling. A theocracy is a nation ruled directly by God or those under God's direct authority, such as the prophets. Israel was a theocracy. God wanted to show the whole world what it looks like when a nation follows the Lord. He wanted to bless them immeasurably. He wanted to show the world. He wanted them to be salt and light. Now, Although this was a, a totally unique situation and they were God's chosen people, they weren't satisfied with being a theocracy. They said, no, we want a king like all of the pagan nations around us. We want someone we can see when we go out into battle. And so the Lord let them have it. But he warned them first through Samuel the prophet. He warned them. He said that, when they have a king over them, he would press their sons and daughters into service. And they would pay high taxes on everything. And the people were unswayed. They said, give us a king. Give us a king. So the Lord let him have it. And God said these words to the prophet Samuel. He said, it's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. So now God gave when God gave the Mosaic Law to Israel, it contained three different components. And I think to understand this text in the Old Testament, you have to understand this. Three components to the Mosaic Law. The civil law, that's for dealing with the governing of society. The ceremonial law, that deals with the temple and the sacrifices and all of that. And then thirdly, the moral law, which is dealing with matters of right and wrong. There's these three components. Now, the civil and ceremonial portions of the law were only for God's covenant people. They were never intended for other nations to follow. They were for God's people that began under a theocracy. And they pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And Jesus completely fulfilled these portions of the law. 
And so that's why we don't see them practiced in the New Testament. And we do not have to practice the civil and ceremonial law as the New Testament church. But there's still the moral law. The moral law is, is seen in the Ten Commandments. The moral law is universal. It's for all people. And it applies to everyone today. It remains in effect. So we're not forbidden from charging interest on a loan. And we don't have to forgive loans every seven years because that's part of the civil law. But even with the civil law, there are principles in it that are moral and that do apply to us. For instance, we're not to take advantage of the poor. We're to care for orphans and widows and so on. Those are moral principles embodied in the civil law. But we're to care for the poor, but God doesn't prescribe the governmental way with which we are to do this. He doesn't. So the civil laws were only for Israel. Does that make sense? So if, if you want to look more at this topic of um, politics, then let me suggest a series from 2016 called Crossroads, where Christ and culture meet, and one particular message is on politics. And we'll break that down further. What's the role of government? What's the role of the church? What about elections? Am I just voting for the lesser of two evils? You know, that, that'll dig into all of those things for you. So here, Nehemiah tells the nobles and the politicians, the officials, that what they're doing is wrong according to God's civil law. It's sinful. And he tells them to stop it and give the money and the property back. And in verse 12, kind of to my surprise, we will give it back, they said. They'll give it back. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Well, how did Nehemiah gain such influence over these people? It wasn't just his government position of authority as the governor appointed over that region. It wasn't that. Nehemiah appealed to the law of God. He appealed to the word of God. He said, shouldn't you walk in the fear of God? Now, even as parents, Deborah and I, tried to communicate to our children that when they disobey us, it's not just us they're disobeying. They're disobeying the Lord. They dis they're disobeying God and his word and the authority that God has put in us as parents. We wanted to point them to that higher authority. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's pointing to the word of God. Now, John Adams was the second president of the United States. And in his first address to Congress in 1797, he said this, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, and licentiousness would break, out to, would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our constitution is made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Now, wouldn't you like to hear a State of the Union address like that? That's what this was. John Adams knew the United States Constitution was only suitable for the government of a people whose hearts are submitting to the rule of God and to God's moral law. It's completely inadequate for governing any other. You can't take 
our system of government and implant it in a pagan nation and expect them to prosper. He predicted the problems which we're, we have unfolding in the United States today, a country that's turned its back on God. We're no longer one nation under God. We're one nation that's going under because we kicked God out. Now, government can try to solve the problems externally. They can enact more laws, and we got a lot of them. They can build more prisons. They can prescribe medications and therapy. But until you address what's inside the human heart, nothing will change. See, you can outlaw guns with the law, but you're not going to stop, change the heart of a killer because of that law. You can outlaw and regulate ammonium sulfate, which was used to build, blow up the building in Oklahoma City. But you're not going to change the heart of the person. I mean... Cain killed Abel with the rock. <laughs> what are you going to do, ban those? It's the heart of mankind that is the problem. But here's the thing we have to realize. It's that the government is not the means for transforming the world. The gospel is. And who's responsible for bringing the gospel? We are, as the church. When the society is faltering... It's probably reflective on the job that we are doing as the church. Not always, but we got to look closely at ourselves. Our job is to bring the gospel to change people from the inside out. Not look to the government to do it through some new laws or some new leader. I, every year I become more and more disenchanted with what I see in both political parties. I really do. I think I'm gonna, my party affiliation is going to be a theocrat. You know, under the leadership of God. I long to see our country return to godly values. Now, they do have to be embodied in the laws. But the only way to change the heart is through the gospel. So, Nehemiah appeals to the word of God and, and his authority. And he says in verse 12, Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath that... that to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. See, Nehemiah confronted their iniquity. And they committed themselves to the Lord. But he even went a step further. Nehemiah, he pronounced a curse on anyone who should not follow this commitment that they made. That's what the shaking out of the robe was. It was symbolic of God separating them from his favor if they should go back on their promise. So we've seen the inequity. We've seen the iniquity in the nobles and officials. Now let's look quickly at the integrity. So, verses, verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. 
Well, under Persian law, Nehemiah had the right to draw food and tax money from the citizens. But he didn't assert that right. You see, he refused to be a financial burden to this poverty-stricken people. He wasn't going to do it. He didn't want there to be any comparison between him and the ungodly leaders who preceded him. He wanted to be above reproach. And he did this, it says, out of reverence for God. It's a lot like the example that the Apostle Paul set in the New Testament. He wrote to the Thessalonians, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you. We did not eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. That's New Testament. So it was more than just the government authority in Nehemiah and more than just the authority in the word of God that brought these people to follow him. It was also Nehemiah's own godly example. They could see his character and his integrity and they could see God working through this man making the things he did prosper. This was the power of, of Nehemiah's own witness. Someone once said, no one is useless. They can always serve as a bad example. <laughs> yeah, but that shouldn't be us. We're to, we, are to, we are to live our lives in a way, in a manner worthy of the gospel. Not worthy of salvation, but worthy of one who is a child of God, who has the spirit of God living in them. We're to conduct our lives that way. Because you know what? The world around us is looking at us. They're putting us under the microscope. What are those Christians doing? So when they do, what do they see in us? Do they see anything different than the world? Do they see us wringing our hands, waiting to take advantage of those who have little? Do they see us generously giving to those in need? Well, verse 17. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, O God, for all I have done for these people. Not only did Nehemiah not take from the people, he did the exact opposite. He gave to them. He gave generously. Now, this shows that he had quite a few resources. He had become rather wealthy, serving as the cupbearer to the king of Persia. But he didn't hoard that. He didn't hold on to it. He didn't use it to leverage more and more. He gave of it freely. He gave of it freely, and he trusted that God would provide all that he needed. See, generosity is a sign of trust. For us to let go of what we have, we have to trust that God is going to supply us all that we need. That's what Nehemiah did. This was the character and integrity of a godly governor. Now, as you think about these passages in Nehemiah, maybe there's something the Lord's laying on your heart, something that he wants you to work on. I know for me, I want to grow in this area of personal giving, giving to individuals. See, I, can, I pay my taxes faithfully. I give to the church faithfully. 
But in my flesh, I can easily say, well, you should be a part of our church. We got a benevolence fund and then, and then you'll be helped. Or I can say, God, this doesn't even count. This isn't even tax deductible. Nobody even knows. Why would I want to give to that person? See, in my flesh, I can think that way. But God sees. God knows. He's glorified by that. And so this is one area that I want to grow in. Personally giving to people in need. Not through an organization. Individually. Well, we need to wrap this up. Um, when you look at the world around you, are there some things that make you angry? Yeah, there are for me, for sure. But is it righteous anger? Is it directed at sinful behavior? And is it based on a desire to see righteousness? And if so, are you acting upon it in a godly way? Secondly, are you looking to the government to solve all the problems? Or do you realize that the only hope for the world is found in the gospel? Are you doing all that you can to help on a personal level, looking to God and his strength and his resources and aligning your will with his? What would that mean? Who needs our help? How can we help? What has God given us that we could pass along? And are you loving and serving the people that God has put in your path? Maybe they're people in this church body, in your neighborhood, co-workers. Maybe they're employees. Maybe, maybe they're even the people in Ukraine. That's really been on my heart lately as I've seen the generosity of other people. I think these are some of the important lessons that we can take away from this account of Nehemiah and that we can apply to our own lives. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us to be the people that you call us to be. Salt and light in this world, following the example of Jesus Christ, who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God, I know we can't do that on our own, but I also know you're not going to do it without us. So help us to make every effort to pour over this, to pray over it, God, to strain toward it. And at the same time, God, help us to draw upon your power and your strength and your wisdom and your resources to actually